This is the Roaring Elephant Podcast for the 25th of October 2016, a podcast about Apache Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem for anyone working with or investigating big data. My name is Dave, and here is my co-host, Jon. Hello, Dave. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much, as always, Jon. Yeah, I'm inviting you this time. New and exciting news for the week. Yes, well, we'll have to start with news for the week. And uh, shout out to Dave, my co-host, for remembering the order of things. Um, we didn't hear back from IBM or Cloudera on Kudo or MapR on the authorization questions we had in the last episode. So we can't go any deeper into that. Too bad, I guess. So let's go into the news and you get number one, I think. I believe so. Um, so first one is actually, we're always talking, or quite regularly at least, talking about organizations um, wanting to go uh, towards being data-driven, making decisions based on data, because if you're not making them based on data, what are you making them based on? And there's uh, an interesting article um, from the Data Digest Online, uh, which is actually talking about the fact that executives are still actually making decisions based on gut instinct rather than data um, when they're planning for the, for the future. It's it's quite a, it's quite an interesting article. You know, some some in some ways they're saying that you know some of the some of them don't trust the data or believe they know better than what the data you know is predicting or suggesting. And it, it's um, from a uh, PwC uh, report on unlocking data possibilities with advanced analytics and machine learning. Um, it's actually based on um, uh, you know, the situation in Australia, but I actually think it applies in a variety of different organizations worldwide. Um, so worth, worth sort of worth a read, worth kind of understanding why some people are still feeling that they, uh, you know, they exist in this space. And I guess the question really is is a and i think yon you used this term is there a change of the guard required you know some people are, they're so used to making those decisions based on you know gut instinct they don't you know they maybe they don't trust the data maybe they think they know better than the data i've certainly known uh, execs that uh, certainly operate with that belief before but uh, you know really make sure you've got the right leader for the right role Clarify the um, the expectations for that role and the, the value proposition that they bring. Um, have a clear reporting structure, and make sure that actually you're you're tracking that from uh, a return on investment. Making sure that you know these sort of things are delivering the return on investment that you're expecting. So, kind of, kind of interesting article, kind of different sort of view of things. Not everything in this uh, in this big data world is rosy and clean and some people still aren't quite up there getting it yeah i think there's a big responsibility for the data scientists in the world to make this a better place i guess because the reason that the executives don't trust the data or they think they know better let's say it that way is usually because they don't understand what the data scientist is presenting them and i'm not saying that uh uh, ex- executives are not intelligent. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that sometimes data scientists present their findings in such a convoluted way that nobody can understand it anymore except the guy that actually put it together. Yeah. And actually, there's uh, uh, as, as everybody knows by now, I do a lot of EDX courses. 
And it's actually one EDX course there precisely on that aspect of how you as a data scientist should put together a nice presentation in a storyline, blah, 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 to make it presentable to people who aren't data scientists. Yeah, uh, really good point. Really good point. Yeah, as long as you don't do that, this will keep on being some kind of dark alchemy, which will require believing in it. And it should be around understanding it. Yeah. That's what, uh, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say that part of it, do you think part of it is about where you are in that journey as well? Because if, if you've if you've had the first couple of, of use cases, they've delivered value, they've shown that this you know, this technology can do amazing things for the organization, people are a lot more ready to believe the insights that come out of it. Do you think some of it is to do with organizations that are just very early in that journey, they don't yet understand what big data can do for them? Well, there's definitely the thing that from experience, things become clear. I've done this before, so I know I understand what it does. But I think it's more a getting mature of the tool sets around it. Because where in the early years, the major development research was done on making it all work faster and on bigger data sets and things like that. And only in the recent, I don't know, year or so, I think, we've seen an, uh, more people investing in making the tools user-friendly. I mean, finally, we have a log and an analytics engine on, uh, on Ambari. Before that, you had to go in the system to go and dig around in all the log files. Now you have this little tool in Ambari that gives you a nice dig deep into there. Now that's specifically on the hardware, on the oh, sorry, on the technology and the Hadoop technology itself. But the same thing is valid for things like uh, the data mirror solutions, uh, all the things around that. They all make it easier to work with this thing and give you the results not as a long list of numbers, but as a nice graph or a map representation, stuff like that. And I think that's going to be a bigger step towards making it understandable for people that aren't data scientists than having the, having, having, having it done before. However, that wasn't English, but still. Because if just contrasted with something like Excel, for example. Yeah. Even if you have never done a project using Excel, if I give you an Excel sheet, you will understand it. Yeah. Because it's a very simple tool. Obviously, you just have number of num- a list of numbers, and it has an average or statistics function going on there. Nothing, nothing fancy, but it's the way you would do it on piece of, on a piece of paper. It's very intuitive. It's very easy to understand. Now I'm talking about regular standard Excel. Not a, I've seen some Excel sheets that I really don't know how they work. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm talking about simple Excel sheets here. So for me, it's more of a getting a, maturiza- a maturization level of the tools used in the, the whole uh, ecosystem. Yeah, makes sense. That's good. All right then. <laughs> so what's your first news article? Uh, my first news article. Let's click on the page. Um, it's an article published by uh, CERN, the Collider guys in uh, Switzerland. It's dated from 14th of September, so it's a bit older, but I just recently uh, found it. I haven't found a person that wrote it yet, maybe at the bottom of it. Not too bad. If you know who you are, let me know. I'll put your name on it. And it's Check named- the URL, blog, uh, Luca Canelli. Uh, yeah, indeed. See, that's why Dave does the podcast and I'm just tagging along. So by Luca Canali. And it's pl- named Apache Spark 2.0 in performance improvements investigated with flame graphs. Now, the flame graphs thing, it's a nice visualization, but that's not why uh, I'm taking this article to give it some limelight. It's a nice comparison of Apache Spark 1.6 and 2.0 and how 2.0 is faster. But it starts off with, uh, the, he kind of explains why he did this. 
And apparently they had a relationable database. He doesn't say if it's like SQL Server or MySQL or whatever, just a relational database. Has a query running for 12 hours, which is a bit long. So he, since they saw it was mostly running on CPU and it was easily parallelizable, they went to a Hadoop solution. In this case, it was a 14-node CDH cluster with Spark 1.6. And that same query that took 12 hours now took 20 minutes. <laughs> And as he put I, it, I love I love stories like that. I love them. <laughs> they just they make my day. Yeah, but that's not all. The thing that really catches my uh, my attention here is, and I'm quoting from uh, his article here, all this was done with relatively low effort, as the query could run basically unchanged. Yeah. Nice. That's just, I mean, a lot of people think I have to rewrite everything. No, you can just use the same SQL in Hive and Impal and whatever you're using, and it will probably just run more or less the way it was before. Yeah. So that's good. But anyway, that was with uh, uh, Spark 1.6. And uh, also, I I like these guys from CERN. They're very thorough because he also then tested it on a beefy Oracle server with 60 cores and got about the same uh, speed improvement. So if you got a lot of money, you can go for Oracle, and that'll also give you some advantage, uh, advantages there. But there he did have to do some work to make it run. So that yeah. was the 1.6 version. Then he went to 2.0. He says Spark 2.0 enters the scene, and at that point he actually boiled it down to, take a guess, how long did it take on there? Goes from 12 hours to 20 minutes, and then goes to? Uh, I'm going to go, I'm going to go with 10 minutes. Two. Two. That is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so 12 hours to two minutes just by changing the underlying uh, tool. Yeah. And I'm not entirely, not I'm surprised. It's a, it's a huge uh, jump. But uh, one of the big changes in Spark 2 was indeed their SQL optimization engine that actually got a lot of attention because their first version was workable, but a bit of a work in progress, let's say. But uh, there's a huge increase here. Yeah. And then he just goes on with explaining how he tested it, uh, the tables he used, the queries he used, uh, showing the data, the query plans, how they contrast from 1.6 to 2.0, how the new version uh, has better tools or assets around it. It goes into a bit of detail, not too much, but it's a, it's a nice read it's, and it's very complete. I mean, we've talked before about people saying, I've done this wonderful thing and they don't tell us how they did it or even yeah. what worked and didn't work. He doesn't really say what didn't work here, but he does give you a nice rundown on how he did it and why the the, the ultimate question, why did it uh, happen this way and what's the important stuff. So it's a nice read. It's a bit older, but uh, definitely worth your time. Definitely, definitely. And, uh, you know, and he, uh, we should just be a little bit clear on that. It, you know, not all SQL will run without changes. If you've got, you know, some, um, you know, elements in your queries that are specific to the, a database that you're using, obviously, you know, that's going to require some work and some rework in some way, shape or form. But, you know, there's a significant SQL compliance is actually pretty high across the big data ecosystem now, whether you're looking at Hive, Impala, you know, any of the other tools or platforms, Hawk, etc. SQL compliance is actually pretty good now. So if you can kind of avoid using um, specific database, um, yeah. you know, you talk about store procedures and use defined functions. Yeah, exactly. And you know, any of any time you're you're touching those kind of things, that's going to cause you a bit of pain in terms of migrating the query. But even that shouldn't be too difficult. Yeah, 
Well, that was my first article for today. All right. So I've got uh, another one, and this time, and so just for the audience here, like, we don't talk about these <laughs> before we record. Like we deliberately go out and we do our own hunting for articles. We don't collaborate or anything like this. Uh, but I have I have a Microsoft article to talk about, um, which is coming from the uh, what used to be the Revolution Analytics team, um, and they're talking about uh, rewriting SaaS programs for financial data manipulation in R. Um, the reason I think this is kind of interesting is because I'm seeing more and more customers looking at uh, R to replace SaaS. Now, SaaS has a lot of value to a lot of organisations. Um, but it's not the most uh, it's not the most budget friendly technology, especially <laughs> when it comes to big data. And I think you know the, the worm is turning, as it were. And I think people are looking for alternatives. R is obviously very strong in this space, and it's it's a relatively short article. It's got some code in it that shows how you can, you know, reshape um, particular queries and how the data looks slightly different. How you kind of do how you do some things in SAS and some things in R, and it's it's just a really nice, you know, fairly. Um, you know, fairly simple introduction to how you do that for a relatively simple use case. But I'm seeing this like probably at least once a fortnight, if not once a week, I see someone talking about it. So I think it's it's something that people are looking at really heavily at the moment. So it could be interesting to see you out there. Yeah, R is definitely very prevalent these days. More and more people are using it. A lot of people are using it since uh, its, its inception 20 years ago, I guess now. A lot of people are using it, you say? Yes, no, no <laughs> pun intended. <laughs> um, but I still think the SaaS guys and equivalent uh, products out there have a value because if you're starting to work in R, you have to work on it. You have to develop it, write your programs, figure out what you want to do. You need a different kind of person, I think, to work with an R solution you're building as opposed to using the SaaS finished products if you like which you just install and pay for and they're not cheap you're right there but they do have things that can be used by an operator type person which on R you need to have a developer type person yeah so yeah I think for some people it it could be a pattern to you know career growth or change or you know development or that sort of thing and you're right for other people they they won't have an interest in this as a as a as a comparative technology but yeah, and I think for the for the company itself, for the corporation, you have to make a decision if the thing you're doing with SaaS or R, if it's something which is very near to the product you're selling, the service you're offering, then you want to differentiate. And how do you differentiate if you're using the same black box solution somebody else is using as well, that your competition is using as well, versus I'm just using this tool to do my internal reporting to make something work in my factory, I don't care. In that case, you want to put a lot of effort in training people, educating people, and doing intelligent stuff to gain that extra percentage of performance increase. Yeah. If you're not re- There's a difference there in users as well, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I see a lot of SaaS being used inside the company, while R is used more in finished products that are sold by companies. Yeah, okay. I've not seen that distinction. Interesting. Uh, maybe it's just in my head. Um, my head is does strange things sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I second that. 
You're supposed right. to say no, Jan. <laughs> what are friends for, right? Yeah, good luck with that. Okay, <laughs> so moving on. Um, what's your next article? Uh, my next article. Well, it's actually a flurry of three in a go. So I went looking for. I went looking this morning for some stuff because I only had two articles and I wanted a third one. So I fell onto something on Z on ZNet or ZDNet. Not sure how you pronounce uh, that site. Uh, written by Tony Bear on the 14th of October, so relatively recent. And it's uh, called SQL on Hadoop Benchmarks Get Serious. And he actually talks about two different things in there. Well, related, of course. Uh, the one thing is just his example, which he's using to make a point. And the example he's using is how Cloudera has just uh, released a benchmark comparing the Impala and uh, Amazon Redshift, showing that they're massively better than that. And at the same time, uh, Hortonworks uh, released a uh, benchmark review uh, on Hive 2.0 with LLAP versus Impala, and they're better than that. And... For me, that was an interesting thing to see how Cloudera is comparing themselves with non-Hadoop first vendors and Hortonworks is comparing themselves with Hadoop vendors. Mm. And if Hortonworks is faster than Impala and Impala is faster than Redshift, does that make Hortonworks faster than Redshift? I don't know. Uh, obviously, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> uh, causation and... Uh, what, is, what was it again? Causation does not cause... Uh, not collaboration, but uh, there's a phrase out there. I don't know. But the thing he's actually talking about is that SQL is still the gateway drug. It's still the most used part of Hadoop out there. And yes, you should do a lot more with Hadoop. You should do stuff with machine learning and predictives and IoT. But when push comes to shove, according to this article, most people are doing mostly SQL on their clusters. And that's why SQL is still so important. And that's why SQL benchmarks, you keep seeing them. Mm. I don't know that I'd agree with most people that most workloads are SQL. I would definitely agree it's the gateway drug. I mm. mean, it's what almost uh, even I can write select star from. You know, <laughs> that's, I mean, that's nearly the extent of my SQL, but at least I, I do understand what that does and how it works. And, what it's going to return to me. And almost anyone can pick up some very simple SQL and think, yeah, I, I understand what that does. Go and run it against Hadoop and you get some results back. It, it definitely is that initial, I see almost certainly uh, that's the first kind of use case involves some kind of SQL somewhere, just because the business already knows it. The business already understands it. If you can query this new wacky, wonderful system with all its wacky, wonderful data with you know tools and technologies that the organization is already familiar with, yeah, definitely makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And vis-a-vis benchmarks, it's also the easiest one to benchmark. True. Very true. Compare with everything and everything out there. By the way, that's the first article I found. And then I saw all these uh, benchmark results and the benchmark results from LRAP and Hortonworks. Oh, I didn't know that. Let's go look for that one. So I found that article too. It's called, uh, it was released on 6th of October and it's called Where is Apache Hive Going uh, to In Memory Computing by mm-hmm. Carter Shanklin and Nita Dembla. And it's not a very long article, but it's a nice one because it's the first time I've seen LRAP explained. Uh, a, li- a little less technical than usual because a lot of people people I talk to even in the industry even in the technical uh, world still don't really see how uh, LLAP works they really see it as a choice between am I going to do Hive with MapReduce or MyVitez or mm-hmm. Hive with LLAP 
while mm. LAP is more of a second layer, of, a, a tiered approach, let's say. Yeah. So this article gives a bit more information in there. It's a nice read. And from that one, I then went on to the third article in this little uh, story, which is from the October 11th, again by the same two persons. And that one is called Apache Hive versus Apache Impala Query Performance Comparison. And I was kind of surprised because it's been a while since we've seen actual benchmark comparisons between two competing products. We've seen a lot of uh, benchmarks comparing Hive 2.0 and Hive 1. whatever just within the product. And that's easy benchmarking because it's the same data set, the same environment, just a different version of the product. So you can actually make a benchmark that really you, you can't really say it's fudged in any way because yeah. it's pretty much just the same thing. But comparing Hive and Impala, or in, it's like comparing cars, right? Uh, compare, uh, I don't know, uh, Volkswagen with uh, Mercedes. I don't know. The two different ways of doing of doing things. You can't really compare those things. And I think it's very, um, how you say this, courageous for works to do this. Yeah, and looking I think at the comments, they actually got some blowback on that because people always say it's benchmarks, blah blah blah. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's interesting. I think it it shows. I, I honestly think it shows, and obviously I am employed by Hortonworks, so I have a, a this is my personal opinion. This is not the, the view of Hortonworks. Uh, but I think it shows that Hive is now at the point where it can really seriously compete against Impala from a performance perspective. So they have gone more aggressive, whereas previously maybe that the performance was not quite there and therefore they didn't want to make direct comparisons they just wanted to say hey we've you know one you know one point one point x is uh, now even faster than one point y yeah. and all that sort of thing so i think it it is a it is sort of switching to more of a direct sort of more of an aggressive sort of comparison i've seen some of the uh, some of the blowback and some of the uh, some of the comments which are which also kind of amusing you know some <laughs> of the some of the comments with it along the lines of well you know the way that graph is has been shown is is not actually a fair comparison well <laughs> one of the interesting things about the way that Hortonworks does a lot of these comparisons is if you scroll all the way to the bottom, you can actually get the raw data as to what's done there. So, yes, okay, the graphs maybe didn't uh, entirely, uh, completely cleanly show the the most accurate picture, depending on how you read the graph, but the, the raw data is right there, so you can build your own graph against it, which is kind of kind of interesting. It's kind of, I quite like that, the open approach. Yeah, 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 and I think you're right about the fact that they're getting more aggressive because they now have a competing solution that actually competes favorably. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason I had these three articles together and now going back full circle to the first article, that's where the comparison was that uh, Cloudera was benchmarking not versus Hive, but versus Redshift. Yeah. So you might interpret that, and I'll leave it to everybody to make up their own minds, that Impala is uh, throwing the towel. Well... So maybe I mean I think there's another there's another aspect to this which is um, if you if you look into some of the conversations that have been happening you know Cloudera have been pushed for more funding so they can you know from Intel so they can actually potentially become a um, you know become a cloud provider themselves so you know they're potentially gearing up for you know, a head-to-head war with AWS, and maybe this is the the first you know big shot in that in that war. I I don't know, but if you read between the lines, 
um, you know, they're sort of starting to position themselves more aggressively directly against AWS. Mm-hmm. Whereas, uh, again, it's kind of standard Hortonworks uh, MO really is we will partner with everybody. You know, we, we partner with, with Microsoft, with Azure, we, um, you know, the recent uh, Hortonworks developer cloud HDC offering on, uh, on AWS. Uh, we work with Rackspace. So it, it's kind of, it's almost like a different approach as well. So I don't know whether it's uh, Cloudera throwing in the towel. I think it's them going aggressive, but in a in a very different direction. I think they're going. They want to go head to head with AWS, and maybe this is the first shot, as I say. Oh, I hadn't seen much about the Cloudera uh, will to become a cloud provider. Do you have any more uh, information around that? Well, we'll uh, perhaps put a link in the show notes. Ah, you make me want to read it on my own. Thank I do you. absolutely. Anyway, Any homework. <laughs> oh, and you you mentioned one other thing um, one. when when we uh, when we initially talked about this. So LLAP. I was going to say so, that. Damn it! You, you're oh, taking my then. voice. Ah, go on then. Go on. Then. <laughs> I thought you'd forgotten about it. No, 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 no. I've, I've made little marks in my web pages so I can I don't forget things. I'm old, but I'm not that old. But as Dave was trying to steal my thunder there. For people in the know, uh, LLAP is an acronym that stands for, now you can say the old one. Well, live long and process is what it initially sort of stood for. Yeah, and, and then in this was... article, it's uh, called something else. So I asked Dave before the show, do you know what they put in there? And Dave said, low latency analytics protocol. And actually, in the article, it has a third version now, which is the first time I've seen this one. And it now says, long last and process. Yeah, so <laughs> I'm just going to call it Llama Llama <laughs> Yeah, I think you need to talk to your Hortonworks colleagues and make sure they get their acronym straight, because uh, this is getting confusing, man. Yeah, uh, mm. maybe it'll become clear, but until it does become clear, Llama Llama <laughs> Aardvark Penguin. There we go, it's official. Should be an elephant in there somewhere. Anyway, one last thing I want to mention from this article. Uh, earlier, you, uh, you said that uh, difference between SQL aren't that major, but you still could have some issues there. But if you stay away from things like store procedures and, and whatever, you should be okay. Well, actually, in this uh, um, uh, benchmarks is based on the TCPDH, I guess. I'm not saying that I'm pretty sure it is. Uh, there are actually five queries that didn't run in Impala due to syntax errors. Mm, interesting. No, they weren't using DCP. They're using a Hive-specific uh, uh, benchmark. So that's probably why, because I'm pretty sure DCP does works on everything. But uh, apparently there are there are still differences. And there we go. Anyway, I'll put the three links in the show notes. It's a nice read altogether. It gives you a nice uh, idea about how benchmarking works today and, uh, well, how things are moving. So over to you. All right. So... I just have a, a quick shout out, which is to uh, Chris Serdak, who gave us uh, some feedback and uh, mentioned he listened to the podcast and enjoyed it very much. And uh, if you want to actually see what some of uh, Chris's thoughts are, you can check his blog out on uh, serdak.com. So he's got some interesting articles around innovation versus improvement, um, why some big data projects fail and other things. So check that out uh, again, link in the show notes and thanks Chris for your feedback. Okay. Nothing much to say about that. So let's finish off with some fun. 
when I was looking for articles, well, even when I wasn't looking for articles, at a certain point I got a, a mail from a colleague who sent me a link, and the link is a couple of years old, so I shouldn't actually be talking about this in the news here, but it's such a lovely thing. It's from IBM, and it's called Four Interesting Things About IBM, Hadoop, and Open Source. Number one, IBM invented SQL over 40 years ago. That's nice, but nothing to shout out to shout about today, I would say. But, I mean, it's not like they're governing SQL at all. But, yeah, you could say they did that. That's good. Number two, IBM is an early contributor to Hadoop. I'm assuming that they are working on it, but have you seen a lot of things coming out of the IBM R&D shops and hit the open source market that changed the world lately? Not really. So, oh well. Third point, IBM is open. And the way they say, they, 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 they justify that is by saying that they offer a distribution based on open source technology. Now, in my book, that isn't what open means. <laughs> yeah, I think they're, they're rewriting that book. I think that's the problem. <laughs> and the last one is IBM is enterprise ready. And I guess if you didn't know that, then, well, whatever. But again, this is two years old. So I was thinking, ah, it's fun, it's a nice infographic, it's, you can have a bit of fun about it, but this is old stuff, right? Until I found another little nugget out there coming from IBM Hadoop Develop, uh, their website on it. And at first glance, it's it's about their uh, big SQL uh, component, which you can actually put in Ambari, run on your Hadoop cluster, and have some screenshots on Ambari in there, and how to configure it all, and that looks uh, very nice and dandy. But I didn't get the title. Because the title says, and explain this to me, how this can be a relevant title in this day and age in a Hadoop environment. Recovering from a database disk failure in Big SQL. Yeah. I don't know. So, I mean, the thing is that usually, I will say, usually the, the stuff that comes up on developer.ibm.com is pretty good. Yeah. Like, like some of their red books and yeah, other yeah, stuff definitely. there. Really, really high-quality stuff. I learned a lot from them. But, yeah. And, by the way, the the first one was two years old. This one is dated October 20th, 2016. So, can't get much fresher than that. Yeah. If, yeah. if we were feeling very unkind, we could say, IBM, not getting big data back then and maybe not getting big data today. But well, we're not consistent. So, we're not going to say that. <laughs> anyway, it still shows that even big companies... Are, might might still be struggling with this whole new uh, brave world. Indeed. And I just had a good laugh on it, that's all. Yeah. Sorry, IBM. Yeah, sorry. We love you. Yeah, and again, come come on the podcast. Tell us why we're wrong. Yeah. All right. So, that's our news and reviews. Anything else to add, Jan? Uh, No, I think I made myself unpopular enough for this week. Okay. (laughs) Well done. Mission accomplished. (laughs) So... That we'll come back after the break and we'll talk about encryption at rest and encryption in motion. Stay tuned. And welcome back. 
in our main topic for this show, we're uh, continuing our little team on uh, security, encryption, and auditing and authentication. And this this time, this number three, apparently, it's about encryption at rest and in motion. Two topics that are quite important and getting more and more important all the time. Last time we talked a bit about how people and corporations are now very much... Uh, you have to be responsible of the data they keep and if there's a leak then that costs them a lot of money and of course encryption is the uh, best I don't know weapon against that I guess and of course you have to do encryption at rest and in motion we'll go into deeper on that now and if you want to have a nice overview you can actually go to the Apache website because we have a link in the show notes but they have a little page on transparent encryption that kind of uh, details the different levels there going from disk level to file system level to database level to application level might say database as an application but still that's a nice overview so dave since you are our resident expert on anything security based take us through it all right that's a dubious honor resident expert at the tours okay yeah <laughs> take what you so, get man <laughs> so let's start off with uh data in motion encryption so typically when we're talking about data in motion encryption we're talking about data in flight uh usually across a network of some description now there are really kind of three different uh, methods of, in, of providing this encryption, or three different scenarios, I guess, is the best way to describe them for applying encryption. And we'll do this from um, from the easiest and the, the type that you should definitely do, really down through to the, the third option, which um, I hardly ever see anybody implement, and I, I wouldn't recommend unless you have a desperate need to do it that way. Uh, all will become clear as we as we run through the options. So the first option is actually making sure that you encrypt your, the communication from the client to the edge of your Hadoop cluster. Now, what this means is you're using uh, a client tool. Maybe that is you know, Tableau. Maybe it's just a, a standard SQL interface. Um, maybe you've got some kind of other visualization product making sure that that supports uh, SSL, so you have a, an encrypted tunnel between yourself and the edge node that is attached to the cluster, um, is really important. Um, you want to make sure that your communication between your client and your cluster is secured, that no one else can be sniffing, examining, possibly manipulating um, any of your traffic there. Or impersonating. But, Exactly, and impersonating. Um, you know, anything that you're doing around um, the the queries that you're making, the data that you're querying, all that sort of thing, you know, you need to protect that. You could, especially if you're looking at sensitive data within your organisation. So, uh, you know, we've talked about in previous uh, security sessions, Apache Knox. Apache Knox is a perfect um, place to do that SSL endpoint terminations. But something that it does very, very well. Um, you know, it's the absolute best place to actually do that termination. You could just implement some other SSL proxy, um, but I would suggest if Knox is part of a distribution that you're using, um, you know, just make use of it. It's uh, it's perfectly positioned for that particular point. So yeah. definitely do it. Really low impact in terms of, uh, you know, speed or anything else like that. Um, it just makes sense. 
Yeah, I'd say that the choice between using Nox or a simple SSL proxy would, for me, be how much of the Hadoop ecosystem am I using. If you're mm-hmm. using a lot of components in there, then Nox is beautifully built for that specific use case. But if you only have, for example, an HBase, just putting an SSL proxy on in front of that might just be easier and easier to maintain in the long run. Yeah, maybe, maybe. All right. So the second scenario is actually um, full SSL to all of the RESTful endpoints within the cluster. Um, So this could be maybe you are still using a proxy, but you're not terminating the SSL um, from the client to the the endpoint that you're connecting to. You're passing that through um, to the actual endpoint that you're connecting to within the cluster. Um, Now, personally... I I try to avoid this. I think it's far simpler if you can terminate at the edge and you know, it just keeps things clean and simple. Um, Jon, you got any other thoughts on this? Well, it totally depends on how much in control are you uh, of your cluster. If you mm-hmm. have a physically separate cluster, then just terminating the endpoints, that's fine, the, the entry points to your cluster. But if you're running on, I don't know, on, a, on, a, on an open stack or a VMware or whatever cloud cluster you have out there, you're not entirely sure what other stuff is running on those same hardware nodes. And True. typically, cloud environments are completely separating the network traffic going between VMs on hardware. But if you want to have that extra level of security, that extra level of, I want to be really, really double sure, you might uh, choose to do the full SSL uh, inside the cluster as well. Now, I would also not always do this because it's a lot of work, because you have, you have to go to every single component and uh, make sure the all certificates on there are on there for every component. The one exception I would make is your ingest, because a lot of people see their, I don't know, Kafka clusters or their NiFi clusters as part of the cluster because they're usually built on edge nodes or even sometimes on the worker nodes, which you shouldn't do really. But that definitely should always get SSL because that okay. will get stuff from somewhere or push stuff somewhere and you need to be secure on those points because that's really not inside but at the edge or outside your cluster. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. So the third and final scenario here is essentially full encryption of all of the internal uh, cluster communication, data nodes talking to data nodes, data nodes talking to masters, you know, RPC calls that are happening within the cluster. Um, it is absolutely possible to do. Um, there is a significant performance hit from doing this. It's somewhere in the region of about um, between 30 and 50% um, in terms of throughput, depending on you know, what you're actually doing. Um, it can get very, very performance, um, very detrimental to your performance. Um, sometimes some organizations have no cho- no choice but to do this. Mm-hmm. However, we typically recommend that, you know, you should have your internal cluster network be as secure as possible, be segregated from the rest of your network. That doesn't mean necessarily firewalled off with physical firewalls. That means actually just a separate network, a separate routed network. So that level of separation is usually good enough for most organizations, and they don't need to actually encrypt all of the internal cluster communication. Um, Some organizations have no choice, and they just have to pony up the extra data nodes to uh, soak up the performance hit that implementing this really does. 
Yeah, but it's very hard to actually soak up that performance hit by adding more nodes because the RPC call encryption will go across all those nodes as well, and those nodes will also get crippled. Yep. So the thing that I have a, mo- a biggest problem with this is that your cluster becomes so unresponsive and so, yeah, so just call it bad, that you might have a very secure cluster at that point, but nobody's using it anymore. Everybody's using the little servers under their desks at that point. Because security yeah. is only valid and useful if it's a kind of security that, security that takes in account users. Yeah. If you don't, your users will not use your stuff, your stuff anymore and will do the guerrilla IT path and do whatever they need to do without touching your stuff. Yeah. And yeah, sometimes it, it's, it's definitely, you got to find that balance. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes you need to take a step back and do something you might want to do because it's hyper secure. But let's not do it because people will get pissed off. In the most extreme example for that I always give to my customers is the most bestest solution for security you can have is don't switch on the server. It's as secure as it's ever going to be. It's not really useful. Yeah, true enough, true enough. All right, so that's data in motion encryption um, from a, a Hadoop cluster environment. So notice we're not really talking about data in motion um, in terms of things like NiFi and, and providing that sort of encryption of data movement across your data center or indeed outside your data center. We're purely focused here right now on the, the HDP uh, or uh, CDH, the actual underlying Hadoop environment. So that's data in motion encryption. Now we come to data at rest encryption. Um, so data at rest encryption is essentially a method of securing the data when it is um, existing or persisted onto the disks. So we have the HDFS, the Hadoop Distributed File System, which is you know very good for uh, resilience, very good for uh, performance as well with its replication of data. Um, but potentially, if you do have a, a rogue administrator um, that does have root access, for example, to the um, the servers, they can then go in and they can, you know, read potentially very sensitive information. Um, the implementation of data at rest encryption, otherwise known as transparent encryption in HDFS, actually allows you to uh, encrypt that data as it is uh, read and written from the platform. Um, the interesting thing about this is uh, it is called transparent uh, encryption, not because there's no there's no performance impact or anything like that, but because it's transparent to users as they're using it. There's a, a built-in key management system um, that deals with the encryption keys. You can rotate keys at, you know, at times that you need to and that sort of thing. But you know, once you have a user or an authenticated group of users, if they have permission to access that data, it's automatically unlocked for them. You you don't need to worry about, oh, I need to make sure I've got the right key. It happens, you know, essentially behind the scenes, transparently, as far as the application is concerned. Um, so there's there's really very few reasons not to use this in, in my um, yeah in my experience. The the performance overhead is relatively low, somewhere between you know ten to fifteen percent in terms of your, your I/O throughput. Um, and the nice thing, the really nice thing about this is, 
If you uh, apply transparent encryption in HDFS, you don't have to apply it for the entire HDFS environment. So you can just uh, apply it against certain paths, either recursively or not. So you can say, you know, and again, this comes down to the organization of your data lake, um, you know, how to designate a secure zone within your data lake that everything below this particular path is encrypted using uh, transparent encryption for HDFS, and anything in other areas maybe is not encrypted using that uh, transparent encryption. So you've got a lot of flexibility with this. I think it's a really nice addition to the platform. It's pretty stable now. It's been there for, uh, I think it's probably been there for about a year and a half, maybe a little bit longer even. Yeah, maybe a bit um, longer. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's, you know, we're seeing it used um, on a wide range of places. There is actually now also um, support for uh, a completely separate uh, HSM device. So if you've got an external key management system, um, there's potentially support for that. And there's only a few um, solutions that are currently provided within the platform. But uh, as always, patches are welcome. Uh, and so if you if you have a particular key management system you'd like to integrate, um, you know, either use one of the one of the ones that are currently supported or use the built in one or, uh, you know, perhaps work with a vendor and or partner and submit patches of your own. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, this uh, TDE, as it's used to be acronymed before, is if you're thinking of using LUX to encrypt your Linux file systems, this is a better solution because it's more to the point and only encrypts what you need to encrypt. Now, one question I have for you, I seem to remember, and correct me if I'm wrong, that if you're using TDE, the client software you're using needs to be aware of that. Because it's the um, client that actually decrypts it, not the, the, the server part. So, it no, it's not quite how it works. So, as long as the, the client has uh, authorized access, it is decrypted on the fly uh, by the server. So, but you need to you need to be obviously um, an authorized user for that particular zone or area. Um, the other thing that's kind of interesting with this is we're we're getting into this area where you know PCI DSS regulations and those sort of things have become very critical to this kind of conversation, and it's a it's a great technology for applying, especially if you've got. Um, you know, data that's incredibly sensitive. The other thing to mention is if you were using Lux, it doesn't really protect you in the same way. Um, Lux is designed so that if someone gets into your data center, and God forbid that happens, and yanks a bunch of disks out, they then shouldn't be able to actually uh, read those disks when they get them home or whatever nefarious layer or hideaway they're uh, accessing, trying to access your data from. However, if you have an administrator that has a rogue administrator that has root access onto a system, if you're just using Lux, then like when the system boots, Lux unlocks the drives. Therefore, someone can log in as root and, Hey, presto, they've got access to the underlying data. Yeah, that's, that's not, optional, right? You, you, that's when you put the encryption key on the disk. You can actually yeah. have the fact that the system at boot asks you for the decryption uh, key. You can, but as soon Nobody as it... Does. But, yeah, well, this is true. But also, as soon as that, as soon as that is unlocked, yeah. that means a rogue administrator can read your data. Whereas with uh, the HDFS uh, transparent encryption... True. Even if you have root access, you still can't act, you still can't see the data. Yeah, Lux basically only protects you against somebody stealing your disks. Exactly. So 
Transparent encryption. Use it. It's good. <laughs> so, I mean, Jon, what, what are some of the other things to, to think about when you're talking about, um, you know, maybe cloud versus on-prem? Um, well, for cloud systems, of course, your storage layer is usually not at your compute cluster. You mm-hmm. typically have a separation of storage in one cluster and compute in the other cluster. And at that point, you'll also be usually working with, especially in public cloud, you'll be working with block storage for because it's cheap and readily available. And block storage has also the possibility to encrypt their storage. And in this case, that encryption of S3 or WSB, and I think Iceland has something there as well, and pretty much any kind of SAN NAS vendor will have something like that. You might think they compare that that's kind of encryption with Lux because it's also a kind of called physical layer encryption of your disk. But in this case, it still works because it's pretty much built into the service anyway. So why not use it? And you don't have a rogue administrator capable of logging in on those storage servers because those are usually managed storage servers by those cloud providers. So it does work. And in that case, I've done some testing with WSB encryption and uh, HDFS TD encryption in Azure. And the WSB had a slight, uh, slightly better performance, a slightly less mm-hmm. loss of performance because it was typically built in. Yeah. But um, So there's that as well. Yeah. Doing both at the same time makes no sense. Don't do TD on top of uh, already encrypted block storage. Yeah, unless you're really, really paranoid. Yeah, but the thing is that I've always heard that encrypting things twice makes it easier to decrypt. Don't ask me why. It's something I've heard somewhere and stuck in my head. Yeah, I don't know. I believe that, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think there's a there's there's another point that we we've not really um, you know not really hinted towards too much here, but there are a huge variety of uh, other players in this particular space. Um, that give you additional value add on top of the built-in uh, encryption that's available within the Hadoop layer. So you've got um, you know, partners, third-party ISVs such as DataGuys, uh, Privatar, uh, HPE Secure Data, um, which you may be more familiar with as a product that used to be called Voltage uh, that was acquired by HPE some time ago. And, and there are several others in this space. And if you're looking for something even more complex, um, maybe that's doing uh, native sort of file system tokenization on the fly of data and, you know, all kinds of weird, wacky and wonderful things like that. Um, then, you know, these these solutions have the ability to do all that kind of good stuff, along with a whole bunch of other things like, uh, you know, data discovery and all sorts of interesting things like that, too. So definitely worth, uh, you know, expanding your view beyond the the basic TDE once you've got that implemented. And, uh, you know, if you've got some very stringent requirements around, uh, you know, tokenization of credit cards, it's definitely possible to do this with just, you know, native uh, calls within Hive, for example. You you could have your own... um, uh, your own custom UDF to, to do that. But if you want uh, an out-of-the-box solution that'll do it, there's you know many partners out there that'll be able to help you. Yeah, you also have Ranger now being able to uh, anonymize uh, or just hide certain columns in Hive as well, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 But things that like data guys will give you more flexibility because a data guy solution can be uh, in and across your Hadoop environment and it can make it so that a field in your SQL data warehouse 
And that same field in your Hadoop Hive table gets encrypted the same way, so you can still have correlation Correct. between the two. And that's yep. something that a Hadoop-centric solution will never be able to do, of course. Yep. Now, I've talked to the guys from Data Guys recently, and I've talked to some of the others as well. And the fun thing is, which I liked very much, is that they're actually using uh, Apache Atlas underneath to do this uh, tagging and, and meta-tagging and stuff. So yeah, they're, they're very yeah. nicely integrated. Yeah. Excellent. So what else can we talk about? Uh, one thing I can hear, I often hear from my customers since I'm working in Azure a lot is the difficulty of keeping your uh, data secure while you're moving it from on-premise to a cloud. Because a lot of times your data get generated somewhere in a shop or a cash registry or whatever, and then needs to go to the cloud. It's more of an IoT problem there, but there are also these, uh, especially the uh, in-motion thing, of course, plays. Uh, things like data guys and Privatar can also help you there, or you can just do your own encryption before and afterhand. That's just just be aware it's a, a point you have to yeah, have to pay attention to, and sometimes even most of the times uh, SSL encryption is sufficient as long as you're doing RESTful uh, HTTP uh, traffic. There shouldn't be any need for more than that. Just be aware there's something to be do to do there. Now, one thing I was thinking by myself in my lonesome here while you were talking. How about store data stored in memory? Because more and more of the Hadoop workloads are moving away from disk-oriented uh, uh, I.O. to first load into memory and then start working on it. Things like TDE will have your disk encrypted. But once it's read by the client, whatever tool you're using to memory, it's usually decrypted at that point, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So I think that if you look at um where things are going most things are protecting against um you know rogue admins or hardware being stolen good news is if someone stores your ram um <laughs> it, it's quite difficult to recover data from that it's not impossible depending on who you talk to and uh, how much money you're willing to spend but it's it's fairly difficult <laughs> um but yeah data in memory is one of those things that has been uh, you know, people have been chasing encryption of data in memory for a long time for a variety of different reasons and through a variety of different technologies. I don't believe today that anything exists within the, the Spark world or uh, or similar. Um, I would imagine it probably won't be too long before we start seeing uh, solutions in that space that add additional encryption to that though i mean it, it's just it's bound to come as the technology is mature i would suggest i don't think it's a technology problem i think it's a why would i want that problem because the whole idea of putting your stuff into memory is to have low latency maybe maybe not but still fast access to your data without having to jump through hoops by reading from disk blah 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 Encrypting it will always give you a performance hit. It will. Now, it on will. A disk, it absolutely will. On a disk, the performance hit is negligible because it takes so long to read a byte from disk. In memory, you might just... I have no idea. I have, I have not tested this, but you might just be looking at a 2x uh, performance hit. I, I think you're probably right. I think it probably will be something of that order of magnitude. I, I also have no idea specifically, but that sounds about right from some previous solutions that I'm thinking about. Mm -hmm. Dredging up from, uh, <laughs> from memory, no pun intended. Um, but it, it, it's about that balance, though, isn't it? It's yeah. about what your requirements are. Exactly. If you If you have the requirement that 
all data must be encrypted throughout on the system, whether it's in memory or not, then you've got to do it. It's like people that have to implement. Um, I know, you know, a small handful of customers that have had, they've forced, been forced to implement, um, you know, um, encryption uh, in flight of all RPC communication internal to the cluster because their, their internal security standards say this must be done. Therefore, they've had to do it. And they've just had to suck the fact that it, it, you know, it chews away huge chunks of their performance because that's what their mandates say. They have no ability to change or challenge that. So they've just had to get on mm-hmm. with it. Now I can see, I can see a point where that will also probably arrive in the, in memory space. I don't think it's, I don't think we're like need near that immediately. Um, I think we've got a little while before that's really going to get sort of serious, but it wouldn't surprise me to find that sort of uh, churning around in some mailing lists somewhere. Yeah, but I think you'll very quickly hit the, this is too oppressive, let's do it under my desk. If you do it in memory. I don't think it's going to fly. Throw more hardware at it, you'll be fine. <laughs> Talk like that's, a real salesman. Yeah, well, it's it's the answer to all big data problems, isn't it? Right, just throw more hardware. That's why Hadoop scales so well. Just throw more hardware; you'll be fine. Okay, if my power bill is too high, how do I solve it by throwing more hardware at it? Uh, you throw more hardware at it um, <laughs> by throwing more power stations at it. Power stations are just more hardware. It's fine. <laughs> okay, well, I think we've reached the end of the of the subject for getting silly like this. So, so, unless you have something to add, nothing else from me. Then let's end it with this, and we will maybe even end under an hour this time. We are sorry mm-hmm. about making these long episodes every time. But we like to talk, don't we? We certainly do. Anyway, this is all we have time for today. We do hope you enjoyed this serving of Bite Size Big Data again. And we'll be back, of course, in two weeks' time with a brand new episode. Until then, please do go to www.roaringelephant.org where you can find more information on the podcast, send us questions, and uh, please give us a five-star review on iTunes or just put a review on there without five stars. That's fine too. But let us know if you don't give us five stars. Why? So we can work on improving the podcast because we do, do this for you and not for ourselves. Until then, I have nothing else to add. To add sorry, my name is John. And my name is Dave. And we look forward to talking to you in two weeks' time. Goodbye. See you then.